Welcome to the Final Ghost Podcast, where we're pretty sure mirrors are not possessed by a demon. I'm Anna Bukutska, co-founder of the Final Ghost Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. We are now inching our way towards the middle of our teen horror season. And with this episode, we are entering my favorite decade for teen horror movies, the 90s. Backing up a little bit in real life, the Final Girls put in events and screenings that explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. Our next event will be a preview screening of Julia de Cournot's Palm Door winning film Titan, which we're showing on the 15th of December at the Rio Cinema in London. Do check it out, tickets are on sale already, and I'll put them in the show notes. And on this podcast, we take a horror trope, explore it to death through a series of deep dives into the movies that make up that trope. Before we dive into our episode this week, a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Final Goes UK. We also have a Patreon where you can support our work. And if you don't want to join that, that's fine. But we would love it if you could leave us a little review over on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. This week's episode is a double bill of misfit teenage girls that discover supernatural abilities and use them either to save the world or to take revenge on their bullies. Joining me for the first time on the podcast is actor, poet, and producer Arden Fitzroy, and you'll hear them first in the episode talking about the criminally underseen goth teen demonic mirror Rob Mirror Mirror. And in the second part, writer and podcaster Jordan Cruciola joins me to advocate passionately for her Buffy, the original 1992 film adaptation that came before the beloved TV show. The two films could not be more different, but they are united by the fact that they're not as widely seen as they should be. Mirror Mirror is very gothy, very eerie, and very much a mood piece for a bully teenage outsider girl. And Buffy is Buffy. But dialing up the LA aesthetics, dialing up the valley girl, and dialing up the humor in a completely different way from the show. So with all of that said, Please enjoy our take on Mirror Mirror and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You can't just leave like that. I gotta think this through, okay? Can he just leave like that? Who the hell are you talking to? I don't want him to go. Make him stop. Jesus, you are nuts. Charlene's gonna kill me. No, she's not. Arden, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I'm good. Uh, And it's always exciting for me to talk to new people. And it's your first time guesting on the show. And can you tell us a little bit more about you and what you do? Sure. So I am so happy to be here. So thanks for inviting me. And I'm an actor, writer and producer, and that includes podcasts. Mm. And um, 
One that's out right now that you can listen to is uh, the Amplify podcast by The Rise Collective. I just produced the Queer Joy series, which is all about queer people talking about the things they love. And one of the reasons I'm here is because horror is one of the things I love. So (laughs) it works. (laughs) So tell me about your relationship with horror. Oh, I've just always sort of connected to horror media, Mm -hmm. books, movies, video games, um, shows. I just think it's such an interesting and varied genre that reflects so many stories and so many kind of experiences. Um, So is there a particular genre or subgenre of horror that you kind of gravitate towards? It tends to vary. I generally like to try anything Mm -hmm. um but i'm having a pretty long cosmic horror moment at the minute which uh, (laughs) i i think might be a reflection of our existential circumstances just a hunch yeah (laughs) we're living through some very um existential moments right now so i'm not i'm not at all surprised that cosmic horror might be making a, a big comeback in in horror fans consciousness there is something as well about um, horror stories centering kind of younger folk as well, especially teenagers. So the series we're on right now is all about teen horror. And one of the things I've, I've, I've really loved with the previous series as well, but with this one in particular, is since I'm revisiting a lot of these films, I'm kind of seeing a lot of the, the really, really painful experiences that are at the center of a lot of these horror stories and a lot of these um you know the original big slasher films but also the ones to come in further on in a series a lot of them center on just how fucking hard it is to grow up and go through all that explosion of of hormones and doubts and and emotions and a lot of that is visualized through through teen horror um and where do you stand on that kind of genre are you are you a fan of teen horror do you have any kind of favorites yeah definitely like i wouldn't say it's my go-to genre but Mm -hmm. every time i think about a teen horror film i've actually seen and experienced i i have nothing but good things in mind so like scream for example Mm -hmm. like i love the screening you did of it the oh, other week you. it was legendary <laughs> it was so good to sit in a cinema again um and just share that joy with so many people in real mm. life that was so cool um and yeah like so i remember when i was a teenager watching nightmare on elm street mm-hmm. and that's that's like a classic teen horror film i feel it's really weird, right? Rewatching a lot of teen horror films as an adult. I actually, I remember, I don't remember thinking of them so much as teen horror when I was a teenager watching them. I always kind of thought of the the boogeyman and I thought of the the villains, you know, the the actual killers a lot of time in, in the films. But as I've been rewatching them now, I've, I've focused a lot more on the teenagers themselves and the teenage experience. And there is that, that nostalgic element, but also this element of like, I am so glad I'm not a teenager anymore because I would not want to relive those experiences again. I, I definitely agree with you. And I feel that there's so much um, 
in media lately that's kind of responding to that nostalgia so mm. a few years ago uh there was this video game that came out for playstation 4 called until dawn mm-hmm. i'm not sure if you played it i um, don't know i don't think i have i'm very bad with video games it, it was a game where you could kind of make choices that affected the story Sometimes it's kind of rewarded you for like being trope aware, but sometimes it's kind of tricked you a little bit if you're like, I'm not going to go there. Everyone who goes there in a movie dies. So it was a really cool kind of moment. And let's let's kind of um, move into the film that we'll be discussing now, which I think is um, it's from 1990, but it's definitely a, a quite an obscure one um and i wonder had you had you heard of mirror mirror before we started talking about you coming onto the show no i've never heard of it actually so i was really pleasantly surprised <laughs> it's a, it's a really weird one i remember seeing the images of the film before i ever saw the film and being very intrigued by it like the image of Rainbow Harvest, who's the lead actress in the film, sort of kissing her own reflection in a mirror with blood pouring down through on the mirror. And it's it's one of these kind of obscure films that I I discovered when when I was doing very early on in the life of the final girls. We did a screening of it at the at the BFI South Bank, and we had been kind of researching and, and looking into female directed horror films for a while and this kept popping up it, it's uh it's sort of a, a mini franchise with three films but we don't we're not going to talk about the the sequels because they're oh they're not um not great <laughs> let's put it to put it mildly but this one was so magnetic um so i'm really glad you discovered it and before we start diving into it in in depth can you briefly summarize the plot of mirror mirror Okay, so I thought about this, Mm -hmm. and I think it all boils down to um, when a new family moves into its home, a demonic mirror can't help but stam. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And then murder happens. (laughs) Murder just happens. Murder happens. (laughs) (laughs) So... Since it was your first time watching it for for this episode, what did you make of the film overall? Do you know what? I liked it. Mm-hmm. It felt very much like that that kind of classic teen horror film that I've been feeling nostalgic for mm-hmm. as we as we spoke about, but also I found it to be kind of self-aware of what it was in mm-hmm. a way that maybe wasn't that self-aware, if it makes sense. Like in the beginning, mm-hmm. when her mother is uh, walking into the house for the first time and she smokes mm-hmm. and she puts out her cigarette in the garbage disposal, I, I was like, "Yeah, yeah, she's gonna she's gonna die in the garbage disposal. <laughs> it's gonna eat her hand." <laughs> <laughs> It does like set some things up that then and and later on, um I can't remember wh- I can't remember what it was. It was something like in the swimming pool, and there were like some really 
scary, not scary, kind of dramatic shots of the water and stuff. I was like, something's going to happen here. Mm -hmm. So it was really good at setting up an atmosphere of kind of dread, but Abs also like there's some bullshit in the school. <laughs> okay, probably. Well We'll definitely talk about the bullshit in the school uh, later on, but it is it is a very strange film because it's got like I mean it's it comes six years before Scream, right? Which is the self aware nineties teen horror film that revamped and restarted a, a new a new golden era of slasher films. But this does have like those elements as well, right? Of of nods and references to other horror films. Of kind of um of being self-aware in a way that doesn't feel as I guess elegant as as other films, but it kind of it kind of still works in the universe that that Mirror Mirror builds, and there is there is a kind of weird eeriness to the whole of the film and the the high school and the house. Um, what did you make of the overall kind of? eerie tone of the of the film i thought it was very effective especially in the scene where um they're sitting in the school cafeteria and everyone's laughing but it's kind of weirdly magnified so we're mm. kind of in uh megan's head as to like how overwhelming it is and how everyone's laughing at her so that was very good and um when they're sitting by the swimming pool and like you can see the water ripple across the wall and in the reflection that was really clever hey reflecting <laughs> and the dinner scene oh my god the dinner scene was freaky as i couldn't look when like stuff started appearing on the food it was so gross yes. in like that classic way that's like this is cheesy horror and it shouldn't be gross anymore, but it still is. So the fact that it still did its job. Yeah. And it also like those, I, it always kind of surprises me just how much it, it pivots from point of view filmmaking. Um, So we get a lot of, of kind of, of Megan's experience of, of bullying, of her experience of being so isolated and angry and angry at everyone really around her like that scene you were describing when she's um when she's in the school cafeteria and she, we kind of just hear everyone's voices around her that's entirely I felt from her point of view and and that's kind of how it feels as well when you're a teenager and you feel like everyone is talking about you and you kind of make it all about you when you when you've when you feel it, even if you can't really hear anything specific being said about you. Yeah, and it's not exactly... Um, it doesn't deal with this very subtly, too. It's very much... It's. I, I feel that it's a film that really plays with this point of view mm -hmm. stuff, as you mentioned, um, because there are so many questions around what exactly is going on and how much does Megan know about what the mirror is doing and how much is she letting her do it and how much is it working through her? And that's really interesting to consider together with the kind of cinematography mm -hmm. and the choices that were made there. 
What did you make of the of the cinematography of the look and feel of the film? I thought it kind of lulled you into a false um, sense of security. Mm-hmm. Like it would feel like really normal until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And there was a point in the film that I remember thinking, hang on, is every single shot from the point of view of a mirror? Mm-hmm. That would have been interesting. But I mean, obviously it couldn't have been the case, but the fact that we sometimes got the point of view of the mirror itself looking out onto the room kind of put that thought there like how many more times are we looking from the point of view of a mirror because there are several scenes where it shows kind of um, what the mirror was doing um, like in Mm -hmm. the bathroom uh, with uh, the girl in the cubicle and with Charlene in the shower, like there were mirrors nearby. So it's like, is this working through, can this mirror work through any other mirror? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of created a sense of paranoia as well. So mm-hmm. that was really, really cool. And let's talk a little bit about the mirror before we go into into Megan, because it's kind of like... um like we get the backstory of the mirror from the very start of the film. And it's sort of, a demonic genie mirror that can grant wishes to someone who looks into it and and kind of talks to it really i think that's as far as the the mythology of mirror mirror goes right yeah and something about witches um using them as gateways to demons who will do their bidding but mm the demons then take control of the witches i'm not sure all i got from that was pretty much like it's a hotline to hell yeah which backfires a it's a hotline to powers and and like can we talk a little bit about megan's relationship with the mayor because yeah i have questions yeah (laughs) and uh, like as i I was rewatching the film this morning i was like okay so she gets the power she uses them she misuses them in a way but also she kind of like has a sort of borderline erotic scene with the mirror as well which is that first image that i i knew of the film before i ever watched it that i was talking about earlier and it's like a very prolonged scene as well where Megan seemingly just wants to literally fall into the world of the mirror. Yeah. Um, I don't know how borderline erotic I'd call it. <laughs> <laughs> what would you call it? Like, it just straight up, <laughs> to be honest. Like, she was grinding on that thing. I'm like, are you okay? <laughs> Is everything all right? I mean, we know it isn't. But... Mm. And also the scene where she takes out her chewing gum and just kind of smears her chewing gum on it like i don't know if i was a mirror i'd be like uh hello yeah would you mind getting to some windex (laughs) (laughs) there is this like the thing that really really strikes me about this film all the time is that megan is kind of like we we can joke but she is not okay and and i think it does like a the film the subtleties of the film are actually all in her and Rainbow Harvest's performance of a girl who is quite ostracized and bullied, but in a way that is not, she's not like Carrie bullied. It's kind of more low-key and consistent everywhere. And she's by herself because 
she and her mom moved to to LA after the death of 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 her father um that kind of happens before before the film begins so she's grieving she's by herself and she's ostracized at at school and all of these little moments are quite they're quite intense like they're little clues that there's something quite bad going on with Megan yeah I think so and it's really Rainbow Harvest's talent as an actor because I think in anyone else's hands mm. it would have come across as quite school shootery. Yes. But it really didn't. And there was the way Rainbow Harvest played it was just really realistic in a way I don't think I've seen in high school movies before. Mm hmm. It was like you could really sense that this is someone who was trying and didn't quite succeed um, to be, you know, taken this seriously. <laughs> mm. So what do you think about Megan at the center of the story? Because she's both the villain and the victim of her own film. Yeah, I think so. Um, you don't, you can't really tell what's, going on with her after a certain point so I rewatched it this morning as well mm. and I think the first time she's actually conscious of the mirror's power is mm -hmm. when she hurts the teacher or is it her that hurts the teacher or is it the mirror you you just don't know that is she just like going along with it or has it possessed her mm -hmm. um and in a way yeah, she is both victim and villain, but like how much of it is her responsibility? I thought that was a really interesting tension that mm -hmm. just played out through the whole thing, like what's happening and like why does she, spoiler, why does the mirror kill her in the end? Yeah, because she is like, even though we don't really get that much, you know, mythos around the mirror the mirror is not killing people because the mirror wants to kill people he needs to um it needs to be activated by someone's will right so it's it's actually kind of megan who is telling it who to kill and and i think there's it's kind of implied or maybe i'm just reading into it that the mirror is kind of channeling her anger towards the different people around her life. It's like if she's angry at the teacher, then the teacher gets punished. Yeah, I saw that too. And also, I, I just kind of felt like it was really into her, almost like a familiar. Because, mm -hmm. so you know, there's this whole connection to witches that's mm -hmm. like all over the place, like... Yeah. There's this scene where Nikki and Megan are like whispering in the theater mm -hmm. and like I think it's Charlene or Kim that's on stage and is reciting something from Macbeth. Yeah. Yes. You know. Yeah, that's and a really good like point. An interesting watch of this movie is to try and pinpoint where the responsibility mm -hmm. is and where it's coming from. I'm inclined to say that the like ages old eldritch devil mirror has more agency than maybe we give it credit for but to what extent does megan amplify that and that's such a kind of gothic horror trope that mm -hmm. it's kind of takes it's kind of takes this away from classic teen film 
mm-hmm. despite having all the beats of a classic teen mm-hmm. film to like a classic gothic thing especially you know in those moments where uh what a face miss v's or whatever yeah. is reading the journal of the woman who last used it in 1939 and then it feels almost like epistolary it feels like dracula or whatever yeah absolutely and also you know let's not forget that it also and i know this is different types of gothic but the design of the mirror is quite ornate very much uh reminiscent of kind of gothic houses especially of of more um of more straight up adaptations of gothic novels but also megan is pretty much a Megan is presented as a god and she's made fun of for the way that she dresses and the way that she looks, um, including some girls dressing up as goths in the middle of a classroom. To be honest, I thought they looked better as goths than they did as, as kind of cheerleaders. But, you know, sure, whatever. If you feel like that's an insult, great. You just look better, babes, but fine. <laughs> um, how do you think it kind of melds those those two things, the kind of the, the visuals of the goth that we associate with goths gothic uh tropes and teen horror tropes well that's respect it's it's really funny because it's like oh so goths do have special murder powers (laughs) what (laughs) what are you trying to say no but um i just thought the look was really really cool and i definitely agree with you about the whole like Let's everyone dress as a goth to make mm-hmm. fun of her day. And also how things have moved on. Like, I don't think any senior school or high school or whatever anywhere would bat an eyelid at someone coming in dressed like that these days. Well, unless <laughs> they have a uniform. Yeah, fair. Which is interesting because also Rainbow Harvest is often she only did a handful of films, so she and she kind of disappeared. Um in the in the mid 90s i mean kind of from the screen she wasn't she hasn't really done work since then but she's often compared as uh, compared to winona ryder and and obviously winona ryder's previous role in heathers which is 88 and and kind of her goth take uh, on lydia deets as well and beetlejuice kind of feed into this film a lot especially visually and it kind of, it becomes quite eerie because they look so similar oh yeah i definitely thought it was winona ryder at first <laughs> like without a doubt i was like okay this is heathers <laughs> <laughs> and what did you um what did you make of rainbow harvest's performance oh yeah as i said she was so good she managed to treat it with like I don't know the the way she kind of treated and respected the character left it perfectly ambiguous you know the whole villain or mm-hmm. victim uh, conversation it could be anything but it all made sense in the way she did it and as I said before it could have gone very easily stereotypical school shootery mm-hmm. and she didn't do that Uh, And she was just so, as you say, charismatic and her outfits were iconic and she kind of carried the film a little bit. Well, that's not true. Everyone was really good, but like she was just so there. How do you think her her character's kind of personality shifts the more she becomes entangled with the mirror? 
it's weird. It's almost like a Beauty and the Beast type story, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because it's like she's becoming more comfortable in herself, but not necessarily in a good way. Mm-hmm. She's obviously carrying a lot of anger and stuff, and she's letting it out more. She's she's never taken any shit, I don't think, but the way she doesn't take shit later on in the movie includes, you know, um, boiling a cheerleader alive, so... <laughs> maybe maybe less of the murder megan maybe less of that (laughs) but then again was it her or the mirror yeah but also then if there's less murder we wouldn't have a movie and and you kind of mentioned that um because of this ambiguity it doesn't feel like that she's so villainous because we see her being bullied and and rewatching a lot of these classic teen horror films, even the ones that aren't strictly positioned as teen horror, bullying is always a big part of all of these films. And this one felt very, like I was mentioning before, kind of quite an intimate take on on bullying. How do you think it's explored in the film? Uh, the the way you mentioned it, like earlier, that it's very kind of persistent and low key. And kind of gets into all the parts of Megan's life. I think it's portrayed really well. It's not like mm-hmm. some kind of stereotypical, um, hey, Dweebenheimer, uh, I'm going to throw your homework on the floor and throw it in the toilet. <laughs> you know, it's this really subtle, like, there's a scene where she's hanging out with her new best friend, Nikki, mm-hmm. and her boyfriend. And she's just telling them, about this bad feeling she's got that has to do with, you know, mirror murder stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, the the boyfriend kind of, like, makes out as though he's listening to her and then he's like, uh, maybe you can do something about it. Maybe you can stop being so damn weird. And then he leaves. So th- that was really like, ooh, that actually looks like a real thing that teenagers do to each other, not like this highly cinematic, mm-hmm. um, dramatized version of kind of let's leave this weirdo out. <laughs> yeah, but she also she also does get like a friend. Nikki was a great um, example of a best friend character in this movie. I feel mm-hmm. because. She was really, her boyfriend says something about her, like, um, helping lost causes or whatever, but mm-hmm. you you never felt that. She was, like, genuinely kind and genuinely helped uh, Megan out, and you kind of felt a vibe that you don't really do that, like, oh, this is a friendship that could help both these people but then of course things don't turn out that way do they (laughs) yeah no but it's you could argue that megan kind of ultimately sacrifices herself because of her friend right i think so i'm not too sure what was going on at the end there (laughs) (laughs) and how and why and where and when you know like suddenly we're back in 1939 yeah, there, I don't know. There is an attempt to like explain and and dig deeper into the the kind of the backstory of the mirror. 
I'm not sure it really worked. And it feels like a very, like an almost a separate movie from the teenage horror that's going on. And and I think that's kind of that separation between the adult world and the teenage world, right? Because usually in teen horrors, uh, adults aren't really features, especially the parents. But Megan's mom, who we should say it also is also played like by a relative, like a horror icon, Karen Black, is just as important and also going through her stuff and also falls victim to the mirror. What did you what did you think of the role that the mum and and some of the other adults like figures of authority were playing in the film? It was so interesting to see an adult actually exist in a movie <laughs> like this. And again, it's a portrayal you don't really see because she was like, "Oh, sweetie, I'm going to make you your favorite food." And like she never judged her or she never said anything about the way she dressed even though um the the mother herself very much dresses like one of those cheerleaders or whatever mm-hmm. it was like just a really sweet counterpoint in the film and then you know the garbage disposal <laughs> makes its appearance i mean you could argue that the mom has the most brutal death right yeah definitely that was i i could hardly watch that (laughs) and what do you make of the horror elements themselves of the film because they do like they do get quite brutal like the mom gets her arm eaten up by the garbage disposal and dies a girl gets steamed to death um there's there's some fucked up murders by the mirror in this in this film definitely it's almost a slasher in that respect isn't Mm -hmm. it it's like a demonic slasher yeah I think it's kind of blended into the film very well because we already knew from the beginning uh, because it, it killed the dog first, didn't it? Mm-hmm. That's how you know it's not fucking around. <laughs> yeah, especially because then the mom decides that it's a good idea to put the, the dog's body in the kitchen on the oh, counter. which on the kitchen counter. <laughs> which is kind of like, uh, I think the mom is also not okay. It's not just Megan. No, no, because there's all that stuff about her talking to a psychiatrist and she'd just gotten those dogs mm-hmm. under advice by the psychiatrist. But it it doesn't fall into that trap of um, um, stigma against someone taking care of their mental health, like mm-hmm. you see a lot in these movies, especially in the 80s and 90s. It just kind of shows her trying, which I thought was interesting. Um, because it's not just a case of like, oh, this is just some frivolous woman who's kind of uh, doing weird stuff. Like it was all shown as um, an attempt to kind of renew her life and then getting together with that guy. It kind of becomes tangled up in Megan's anger towards everyone. And I know we kind of mentioned that the ending gets messy, but... Do you feel like Megan had to die for the movie to end to make sense? I don't think so. I I do think that obviously maybe someone wanted a nice kind of cyclical ending where like we start on a certain scene and we mm-hmm. end with that scene and we're like, what are we in an alternate timeline? It's just the people changed around from the original owner of the house to Nikki and Megan. But I don't think 
she had to die necessarily because okay first of all at that point I really didn't know what was going on anymore it was like okay so now the mirror is angry against her and it's trying to like strike against Nikki that I guess but Megan was literally just sitting there and also kind of talking about who has to die and who doesn't mm-hmm. in these movies kind of really puts us in the position of this mirror right it's like the classic slasher conundrum like who gets punished what are the rules <laughs> you know like in scream mm-hmm. um there's uh i think megan is very interesting in that a lot of her anger comes from um that very understandable place of like she's just lost her father and now they're they've moved to a new place where she's not kind of getting on with things Mm -hmm. and the way her mother kind of tries is just a very real depiction i thought um but going back to did megan have to die no no i don't think so i think the mirror was just a bit of a dick (laughs) (laughs) There are those moments of real cruelty to Megan as well that I found very effective. Like when she when she kills that boy, I think it's Nikki's boyfriend, or, or you know, the boy that she kind of makes out with. Yeah. And and then yeah, she that? she just watches the mirror kill him. And it's kind of framed in a way where we we don't really see, we hear the um, the squishiness of the murder. But the camera's just like looking at Megan, looking at the mirror do its thing. And it's again, it's like, it's that borderline, is she getting off on this? Is she enjoying watching the violence? Like there's a there's a really creepy, creepy element to it in the way that Rainbow Harvest plays that scene. And she doesn't do anything. She like barely moves. And then when her mom knocks at the door, she just says like almost very quietly, like, get rid of the mess. And goes to open open the door. I was like, that moment I thought was the most chilling one for me, where she was like, I I'm kind of like now enjoying having this power and and enjoying the pain that I'm inflicting on other people. Yeah, definitely. And one other thing I have to say for that moment mm. that was like really disturbing is that I couldn't help but look at like her bedding mm-hmm. and there was no cover on the duvet and i'm like what is that are you just are you just sleeping on a bed that's like completely like from the showroom what is going on that was so distracting i was like what's happening you know what would have been weirder if it was covered in like plastic yeah yeah I mean, maybe it was a set design thing. Mm. I don't know. But maybe it was also, to to be charitable, maybe they were kind of going for the we're in a weird time thing and Mm -hmm. you don't know uh, what point of, like, abandonment this house is. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. I don't. (laughs) Maybe no one was bothered to put covers on that duvet because that's an arduous task. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, do you know what? I changed my bedding last night and every time I have to do it, it's like, for fuck's sake. Why is this doesn't get easier anytime? Get the corners. Get the corners. <laughs> she could have told the mirror, surely. Surely. I mean, you know, if the mirror could perform like tasks outside of murder, that would make it so helpful. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, what's the point of having um, I don't know, a 
demonic mirror simp if you <laughs> if you can't like you know get it to do all the things you really don't want exactly. exactly but but yeah um that that's that's the point also where i felt like okay something's shifted and i'm not sure what and i'm not sure in what direction and again the way rainbow harvest plays it is not any kind of stereotypical psychopath with a sort of cheeky mm. gleam of violence in their eye. <laughs> no, she doesn't because she's very much like, um, you know, very stoic in a way, kind of very quiet. And you can never tell whether, like I was talking about before, like whether she's enjoying it, whether she fears it, whether she's enjoying the power, whether she's enjoying some other element of it. She just kind of looks, she's got this very intense way of looking that I think really creeps you out because she's almost unblinking and unreactive, even when there's abuse directed at her. Which makes it very, very chilling because you're like, she is banking this shit for later. She's banking this for when she's going to set the demonic mirror on someone who's angered her. She's very used to just banking all this anger and then dealing with it in in, in terrible ways. As opposed to having any kind of almost tearful or emotional reaction. Yeah, and I wonder how much of it is um, her sort of treating the mirror like the first responsible adult she felt she ever had who could actually mm. do something about these things or take her seriously very directly which is another teenage thing isn't it mm -hmm. like even if your parents are like doing that like in her case her mother kind of was she was also kind of um trying to get herself better mm -hmm. but even even then, it's like, did she think the mirror was the only solution, the only kind of entity that offered a way out? Yes. Well, it definitely felt like that. It felt like um like a last resort um type of situation for her. Which is I think the thing about this film that keeps that keeps it interesting and relevant for me. Um, it's the fact that it kind of seems to get at this real sense of powerlessness that Megan has and this sort of like very, very intense coldness that she seems to gravitate towards that I think is just a defense mechanism as well because she clearly wants the things. Like she wants to be popular. She wants to have friends. She wants the boys. But... It's too difficult to show how much she wants it or how much it hurts her to be bullied. So it's much, it seems like much easier in a way to to be quite cold and seemingly unfeeling and cruel. And I think that like defense mechanism ultimately makes her quite cruel. And the mirror, the demonic mirror thing, kind of the, the, the powers that it, it gives her really really kind of adds a supernatural spin on something that I think is a very real teenage feeling. Going off that, I thought it was um, really interesting how the teenagers were shown to be self-centered in their own little worlds, in their own little ways, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because they're teenagers, right? Mm -hmm. But um, by also including um, 
the adult characters. For example, I think this is the first time that I've ever felt in a in a film that depicted a secondary school, like when the teacher called the test and then was like sitting there with his folder, like that feeling of, yeah, it must be the case that when a teacher's told like a bunch of kids to do something for two hours they're gonna sit at the desk and be like well what the fuck do i do now for two hours <laughs> you know and yes. and like the mother um the mother having her own life where she's trying to date this dude who's totally not steven seagal and uh, <laughs> and like trying to figure out what to do with her hair and what to wear and like how to train these dogs that she doesn't have to worry about for that long um it just shows each character kind of in their own world Mm -hmm. and how all this shit can happen at the same time because of that but without kind of judging it as a bad thing because it's not because these are teenagers and i feel that's what a lot of films don't show like the interiority of what's happening like that they are actually people in a world (laughs) so Mm -hmm. a lot of um i don't know if this was counts as a b movie but Mm -hmm. a lot of b movies don't really bother with that it's just oh there's some spooky stuff now everyone dies (laughs) (laughs) i think you're very right and i think that's the thing that kind of keeps me um keeps me recommending this film and and talking about it because i think that that eeriness is is that interiority kind of it stems from that and and also there's just some really beautiful images in it and not just the ones of rainbow harvest and all her goth outfits which are very good Amazing. in my opinion um but artem to before we wrap up is there anything that you wanted to talk about mayor mayor that perhaps we we haven't covered in our conversation so is megan a final girl (laughs) that's an interesting point i would i would argue that she's not i think hers is a is an arc of um disintegration as opposed to the gaining or discovery of inner strength because that's the journey of the final girl right if we if we think about it uh is that she through her ordeal discovers like the strength that she didn't know she had in her and that's how she managed to defeat the the villain or the killer and and this one is interesting because megan is both the victim and the villain of her own story but hers is a journey where she's like losing herself in in her powers and she's she is killing people indirectly and and then she she has to she has like that moment of redemption at the end where she you know arguably sacrifices herself for her friend but she doesn't survive she is the killer i think if anything there isn't a final girl in this film. What do you think? Maybe Nikki, but she's stuck mm. in 1939, so I'm not sure. But I wonder if... Because she fulfills a lot of the tropes of the final girl, doesn't she? So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, um, Megan is uh, kind of a little bit of... Um, 
an outcast. Maybe she doesn't kind of do the same things the other kids do. Um, like, you know, how final girls are usually kind of, there's something that they don't conform. Mm-hmm. Um, she kind of makes a lot of choices that are smart until they're not. But yeah, but there she's also the killer. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I kind of love this film because it does it does kind of fall outside of the usual journey of teen slasher films, especially the ones we would see a lot more of in the 90s afterwards. And and obviously because I think Rainbow Harvest is just so insanely watchable. I'm 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 like really, really sad that there that she didn't do many more films after this one. Yeah, so where did she end up? Where did she go? She did one more film in 1991. Um, and after that, there are no more credits to her name. And there is um there is kind of like there's a couple of of internet forums that kind of trying to find out what happened to her why she disappeared from the screens like whether she changed careers or changed her stage name perhaps or something um there is no there's no like confirmation i remember a few years back when we did the screening i went down the rabbit hole of rainbow harvest online (laughs) and i found one online commenter who was anonymous um a few years ago who said that she was she she had been married to to another actor who she met in one of her early roles and they were still married good for them and that she had been working for the Otis Elevator company for 13 years um huh. again the chronology of this very very suspect but if she's happy and and doing something and and working and married and living her life good for her good for her yeah and there is uh there was like there was like a couple of people online who were very very into her into her few roles and and they were like very enthusiastic about her and they just wanted to i remember writing about it in an essay for our video streaming platform and i just love the way that they put it they were like rainbow if you can hear us just just know that we love your vibes please get in touch (laughs) And we can talk about demonic home decor, listen to Duran Duran, plot our revenge and every basic that's wronged us. Like it was very much kind of, you know, we loved your character. We love your your aesthetic. Uh, we just want to know that you're doing OK. And it would be great to like talk to you about this film. Yes, absolutely. Loves it. And <laughs> it's just everything about this is just the makings of a cult film, isn't mm-hmm. it? Like the look, the story the weirdness everything yeah i know it was released on blu-ray a few years ago in the states um but other than that it's like it is available on on streaming now um in the uk but it's one of those that is kind of you kind of just discover it like it almost materializes to you and then you're like oh this is a weird and interesting film that not that many people kind of talk about oh yeah Definitely one of the obscure ones. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so Arden, thank you so much for your time and for your insights on Mirror Mirror. And when can where can people find more of your work online? So I'm on Twitter at Arden Fitzroy. It's just my name. And 
um, yeah, same on Instagram. But I, I hang out on Twitter more. That's where I live. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a blast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. Are you looking for somebody? I was looking for you, actually. Why? Am I in trouble or something? Because if I am, I didn't do it. <laughs> no, you're not in trouble. I am. I'm years late. You should have been taught, prepared. But I wasn't certain until just now that it was you. What are you talking about? I'm saying that I've been searching everywhere for you, Buffy. Why? To bring you your birthright. My birthright? Is that like a trust fund or something? I think it'll be easier for you to understand this birthright if I show it to you, all right? So you come with me now to the graveyard. Uh, no, 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 no. My trust fund's in the graveyard? God, what's your damage? Buffy. You're one of those skanky old men that, like, attacks little girls and stuff, right? Well, forget you. Jordan, welcome back. It's been too long. It's been it's been so long and I will I will shelve all my resentments at that because I'm so happy <laughs> to be with you back again on a podcast, Anna. <laughs> I have I had the amount of attention that I need? No, but am I glad to have it now? Yes, deeply. <laughs> Uh, you can express all your resentments as we were talking <laughs> off mic. Um, I am fully the chivroy of film podcasting and I, divide <laughs> my, I try to divide my attentions equally. But tell me if you need me to show you more podcast Thank you. love. Thank you. Uh, I There was actually, there was a, a tweet, like some like personality testing going recently or some tweet going around that was like, like if you mm-hmm. had as much money as the Roy's, like, what which character would your personality disorder be on succession and i love the specific not like which succession (laughs) character are you but like what's your personality disorder gonna make you and i really Mm -hmm. i do think ultimately i am a shiv in that like i i think the 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 kind of like the kind of confidence that I have, the kind of misandry that I have, I think the kind of like bravado that is natural to me, if you if you brainwormed that, if you made that like mm. if you made that a product of a life of privilege and insularity and no actual consequence or anybody calling me on my shit, I think I would like metastasize into a chivroy. Be like, well, I mean, of course I'm entitled to be a leader of every actually every fucking room I walk into. Of course I would be. Like, yes, I would be- I would believe it was my destiny to be I am the smartest person in the room and I should be in charge of everything and I'm and I hate men. So, I like ultimately I think that would be me. <laughs> This is how, see, everybody, this is me right now. uh, This is me making Anna the succession podcast that she, for some reason, is not yet, but must be at some point. It needs to happen. I need to exercise this obsession from my brain and my heart. This is the backdoor pilot for your succession podcast. (laughs) That's going to be the name of my succession podcast. (laughs) The backdoor backdoor succession pilot. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Thrilled to be thrilled to be a part of but, its inception. <laughs> but we're here to talk about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not the beloved 
series. <laughs> but the less beloved 1992 motion picture. Immediately minimizing the things I love. Look at this. You're right. No, but You're right. I'm talking about the cultural reception of the film. But when I originally sent you the list of films that I was going to cover for this teen horror season, you were the first and the only person that jumped at Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I have no doubt about that. And I love this. So my first question to you, Jordan, is why this film? What's your relationship with this film? I fucking love Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. The show, I've watched most of it. I had a good time. I hate Xander so much, it makes it hard for me to experience the series at all. Um, and <laughs> Faith got such a short shrift that that, that also impedes me from really loving the series, and so did Cordelia. Um, but... Buffy is Buffy the movie is my Buffy. Like I I saw this when it was like fresh out on VHS. Um I think this is what is this 95 93? 92. 92. 92. So I see this when I'm like I'm definitely pre 10 years old when I see this. And mm-hmm. Buffy Buffy's the shit, man. Like Buffy to me I'm watching this and like knowing my like type now, <laughs> like oh, like just hot girls who are high maintenance, mm, sure. Like that, like like you have that in in this Buffy. You have like the I love L.A. aesthetic. Like I love sort of that valley depiction. I in the way that I feel like the majority of people in my like sort of media landscape world felt very like romanticized uh, by New York from a very young age. I was very romanticized by like the idea of Los Angeles and like, you know, Buffy and clueless and, and just like, you know, the palm trees and the sun Valley girls, that kind of thing. So watching this, like, Hey, I love Buffy. And then like, I love horror stuff and I'm young and Luke Perry is like so cool and he's so cute. And the vampires are so <laughs> zany. They're so zany. Paul Rubens <laughs> is a fucking weirdo vampire in this movie. Rutger Hauer is the king vampire in this movie. It doesn't get weirder than Rutger Hauer doing anything. Donald Sutherland as Merrick. Very accurate. Donald Sutherland as Merrick, greater than Giles times infinity. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said it. And like, and you got your big little Hillary Swank in here. You got your teeny tiny little Ben Affleck in here. Like the retrospect on it is just like, oh my God, what everything that's going on in this movie. And it, me and you have talked a little bit about this um, offline, online, off pod, Anna. But like, I love weird 90s. I love the classification mm-hmm. of movie that I would just broadly generalize as weird 90s, where we were in this time where we had mastered the practical effect we were pre-digital incursion and it seemed like studios big studios would put real money behind the weirdest fucking stuff and and put it out as mainstream thousands of cinema theatrical run films look at any of the schumacher batman and i think that this movie feels to me weirder than the series feels like in the in that um mm-hmm. in the, and just it's sort of dark fairy tale way that it exists like it, it just feels weirder to me than the series and also 
you have Buffy in a prom dress that she's ripped into a short skirt and puts a leather jacket on over the top. And I was like, oh, that's the coolest outfit a girl's ever worn in her yes. entire life. So fashion icon Buffy. So. Yes. But movie Buffy. Like, so yeah, I, I, I've been on board with this movie from the go. And I remember when a series came around and I was like, oh, that's not real Buffy. Like, I have, we have Buffy. Like, why do we, why do we need this Buffy? <laughs> like, it, it confused me then. It confuses me now. Why movie Buffy mm. is not even in the conversation with show Buffy. Because it's not. It's not in the conversation. Nobody's having the Buffy movie conversation. Nobody until us today. That's goddamn right. And and you asked me this before, and I didn't answer you. Yes. <laughs> she was You asked me whether I had seen... I was withholding. Mm-hmm. I was withholding my love just like Logan wrote. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I'm chasing after it just like Ship. <laughs> I had never seen the movie Buffy before. Okay. I do I wouldn't have expected. My my I, I would have been surprised if you had. I would have been surprised if you had. W- were you did you go in? Were you like, I'm gonna try and obliterate any expectation from this? Or when you watched it, were you like, this is or isn't yes. what I expected? No, I had a, a very I had a very small idea of what the movie Buffy was. Mm-hmm. Just visually, mm-hmm. it felt much uh, much more colorful, much weirder, yeah. much less horror-y, much more teeny, um, which are not bad things mm-hmm. at all. And so I went, I went into it kind of like this is this is separate from the show. Yeah. This is the same character, but they live in different universes. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this was essentially the the first um, attempt at Buffy that Joss Whedon made, mm-hmm. but it has nothing to do with the show, and it's not his creative baby. Mm-hmm. I had no idea who was in it outside of Christy Swanson and outside of Luke Perry. Mm-hmm. So when Donald Sutherland started showing up, fuck yeah, when fucking Rudger Hauer showed up. Yep. When David Arquette showed Isn't up. Isn't it shocking? I was like, I'm sorry. What is going on? When Pee Wee Herman, sorry, when Paul Rubin yep. show up and it's so funny. He's doing Michael Sheen before Michael Sheen <laughs> yeah, started doing Michael that is, Sheen. That is an excellent point. This is Michael Sheen in Underworld literally decades before it existed. Yes. This is Michael Sheen in uh, The Laws of Attraction. <laughs> And not, not, and Rucker Hauer in this is not, not Michael Sheen in the Twilight movies. <laughs> this is, this is Rutger Hauer kind of doing, he would then do exactly the same character in True Blood. Yes, <laughs> completely. Like a decade afterwards. Yeah. But I was so enamored with it. This is the sort of weird, like more teen than horror. Yeah. The horror elements are quite light. But I'm like, Buffy's fucking cool. Buffy's a valley girl. Fucking cool, Buffy's man. Buffy is super strong and not a dickhead in this movie. Like, she's kind of abrasive and a little bit rude, but she's also, like, horny. She's horny for her boyfriend. Yes, she, she is. Like, she has desires. She's so completely in herself. And also, like, this, you know, I think it is, it, it's going to be impossible not to compare it to the series because the here, series had such a massive... Oh, it, huge. Um, it's it's limb. Cultural, it's limb cultural effect. piece of pop culture. Yeah. But I will give, like, I thought Christy Swanson's Buffy was much more... That's, that's uh, my Buffy. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not... Sorry? That's my Buffy. That's my Buffy. Oh, yeah, your Buffy felt like she could kick my ass. She felt, like, athletic and strong, and I'm like, holy shit, I am, like, f- like, not scared of you, but I'm like, I believe 
it when you can absolutely kick some vampire's yeah, ass. Yeah. I mean, uh, granted, the vampire is Paul Rubens and stuff, but <laughs> with very little training. Like, and she she had that sort of like share from clueless type yeah! of effortless. I'm a blonde, cool girl. I I'm hot. I know I'm hot. I'm popular effortlessly. Yeah. I fully live and bathe in all of my different privileges. And oh, now I have to hunt va- hunt vampires. That's very annoying for That's me. It's very annoying for I me. I don't want it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it, like, obviously it's a series, it's a different relationship with a character, I, you know, at a certain point mm. in the show, Buffy fucking dies, her friends bring her yeah. back, and she's like, why did you bring me back to this life? Like, she's angry and oh, sad God, yeah. and destroyed mm. that she had found peace and death and then her friends were like we love you Buffy we know and they bring her back and you're like that's the right thing to do and then there's a fucking whole whole arc with show Buffy where she's like I was in the sweet release of death and you took me from that and how could you that's heavy shit I respect that as television and Sarah Michelle Gellar is doing an amazing job with that role you know what I love you know what you know what movie Buffy is movie Buffy's billions Buffy Movie Buffy is Billions Buffy, <laughs> and TV Buffy is Succession Buffy, and I love Billions, and I oh love, I love the simplicity of it, I love the, like, a- easy apex predator of Christy Swanson, regrettably now a MAGA troll, her Buffy, I love that she's not, like, I'm struggling with my infinite nature and being a vampire slayer. She's like, I had plans. I wanted to, like, be a buyer, you know, like, to buy. Like, she Mm. wanted her whole future to be about shopping and buying clothes. And now she has a fucking calling and it's really messing up her shit. And I love that that's, like, the thing in the way for her. And yet it does feel. She wanted to marry Christian Slater and, like, die, I suppose. Uh, Yeah, and marrying Christian Slater and die and but and yet it still does have a strong heart to it like the the relationship i really love i think donald sutherland and chrissy swanson do like a really good job with the merrick buffy relationship in this and he Mm. i love that moment where they they have that quiet time where he's telling her that he wanted to he wanted to be a boot maker and she like pulls up a chair like leans over the back of it and they're just having like a father-daughter moment basically and then like and luke perry oh my god you 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 rest in peace you zenith heartthrob like i rarely root for straight couples and i am all in (laughs) on luke perry and christy swanson in this movie and i am so melty for his whole heartthrob deal yes well let's talk about the teenagers and about luke perry a little bit because it's probably one of the very few instances of a weird boy who gets a makeover and gets cute and then he gets the cute protagonist girl because we see that like the she's old dad vibe of it all we've seen a thousand times with right. girls and they who fully are they fully had beautifully... to gender swap reboot she's all that to he's all that yeah. to do the yeah. same yeah and it, it doesn't work as well but like here <laughs> it works beautifully because it's still Luke Perry underneath like he's objectively very handsome very 90s in the best possible way and also at that point was at the peak of Beverly Hills 90210 I believe like Dylan was was the man Dylan was the dream boat so here 
Dylan is a like a stoner bro, yeah. a burnout in the high school. And his bestie is David Arquette, who gets turned into a vampire really quickly. Yeah. David Arquette has perfected the 90s, <laughs> kind of hot, but not really stoner bro. Yeah. Love him for that. But what do you make about the teens in the movie and like the teen dynamic of it? I love the teens in this movie. I love ditzy opportunist friend Hilary Swank, who like totally bites the <laughs> style and gets the jacket that Buffy wanted. Like it, she's the one who gets the jacket, right? It's not the curly haired friend. Yeah, yeah, it's her. It's her. It's Hillary. Yeah, Hillary gets the jacket. Curly haired friend. Gets, the curly haired friend gets the boyfriend. Gets her fucking like steals her boyfriend and fucks him at prom. But by then she's so over the boyfriend it doesn't matter. I love the this movie to me was probably like the first one where I really recognized that like valley archetype, that LA stereotype of like, mm. oh my god, like this movie was. Pro- and I love that. I eat that up, and I. It is such a, it does such a good job making Buffy really vapid, really immediately. Like, hmm. opening on the cheat, like, come on all you hog fans and shake that caboose. Like, it, like, it makes her entire world shopping and pom-poms. And she's fine. She's happy that way. She's good that way. She's popular that way. But then, like... She realizes that there's a supernatural millennia old war between humans and vampires and she's at the center of it and suddenly she's got bigger things to worry about, but yet she's still a valley girl the entire time. I like that Buffy gets to be in any outfit when she's kicking vampire ass in this movie. She gets to be... That teen girl the entire time that the that the climax of this movie takes place at her prom and like she gets to both have her dance with her heartthrob when Luke comes in having shaved his terrible soul patch off and he's got his like Luke Perry (laughs) Dylan hair and his leather jacket and his white shirt and he's so fucking hot and he comes in and you're just like literally no man has ever existed besides Luke Perry and no man ever needs to exist besides Luke Perry (laughs) and then they have the dance and then like he realizes like he's brought fucking steaks and they realize shit's about to go down and like her dress gets caught so she rips it off so she takes his leather jacket goes off in a tool skirt and leather jacket puts up like hair tied back and she's like we're gonna fucking kill some vampires tonight she kills vampires in a cheerleading outfit she kills vampires in like that incredibly hot 90s outfit with like the crop top and the flannel tied around oh the waist God. and the high-waisted jeans like every look in this is an empowered look for Buffy to go wreck shit and I love that about that and then it gets to be so girl <laughs> that it gets to be so teen and then it gets to be so femme I think it does such a fun job at balancing the reality of this girl and making her realize like, okay, I do need to have some perspective on things, but also like I do still care about cute boys and I do still want to look hot at prom. And that is all still really important to me. I love that. I mean, the enthusiasm. <laughs> I like, I'm living for it. I mean, I have one of my cherished, one of my cherished, I have many, 
many posters. One of my most cherished is a beautiful print by Tracy Ching. It's an 18 by 24 mm-hmm. um, limited edition print for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think it was for when they played at the Roxy in San Francisco a couple of years ago. I think this might have been it. I could be lying. But she did a limited run of it and it is the colors of it are it's it's a it harkens to the original poster where you just see like the cheerleader like thigh skirt from the back and like a pom-pom and like a yes a, a steak yep. hanging down yep. to the side of it it's a it harkens back to mm-hmm, that and the colors mm-hmm. of it are neon magenta purple and yellow and it's just that like profile from the back and then like or that shot from the back with like a steak hanging down it says buffy the vampire slayer it's so pop art and it so embodies the movie to me so I was going to ask you, you mentioned the kind of the LA aesthetic of it all a few times. Mm-hmm. And like, what does that mean? Especially the LA aesthetic in what is supposedly kind of a teen horror film. Or, you know, it's light on the horror, but it still involves killing people. It still <laughs> involves killing vampires. Like, there's still an element of thread and like the horrific in there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that is, I I mean, you have your, you have your, I mean, Christy Swanson, just the the look of Christy Swanson. Uh, that that mm-hmm. era of her with that like impossibly volumized like shortcut that was like it was almost like the most like radiant triangle of wavy blonde hair that you could have on a person and somehow it doesn't look weird and it just like her <laughs> she so embodies that like so cal blonde and like convertibles mm-hmm. and malls and the, like the valley lilt the vocal fry the upspeak like all yes. of that that was kind of sold to us as so many teens i think i think acutely so millennial teens and maybe like late stage gen xers that that the teen experience was so sort of intertwined with sort of the Southern California experience. Like, I remember when I got to high school Mm -hmm. and my high school wasn't organized around an outdoor quad. And I was like, but that's not, like, that's what high schools look like. It's like, yeah, that's what high schools in fucking Los Angeles look like when it's 75 (laughs) and sunny all year long. You live in Oregon, Jordan. It rains here. Like, but my, my idea of what adolescent experience Mm -hmm. looked like was so shaped around these things that were like made like physically made and produced in these socal climates that like and the idea of like girls who you could imagine being on the beach at any moment with their friends in time and have like you know that long shot of of malibu and the 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 PCH sort of hills carving out the the view behind you. That to me, like it is almost, and I think that's why I think that's why sort of the the idea of LA was always so enchanting to me. Was it was it was sort of inextricably linked to like formative times, developmental years, the adventures that are incumbent in that coming of age, like sunset strip. There's always something going on. There's something you could fall into and walk into at any moment if you just put yourself in the center of LA. And there was so much kind of possibility around that with the inextricable sort of like persona of LA. It's not necessarily the reality, but the persona of LA that is so steeped Mm. in like hotties, just beautiful people. Everybody's hot sun-kissed, walking around all the time, um, you know, with their beautiful tan-toned bodies out, Katy Perry's California Girls kind of shit. Like, that to me was sort of inextricable <laughs> from youth and upbringing. And so it just sort of it becomes mm-hmm. like a perfect distillate. You have like a Buffy character that becomes like this perfect distillation of that for me in my head. Mm-hmm. And what about the horror elements of it? Like, I know, I know they're quite light, mm-hmm. but I have a very soft spot for sort of teen or kid-based horror films that still 
take the horror seriously within the text, but it is goofy. It, it is, is goofy, goofy to look at. This movie is silly, and that is one of the things <laughs> I love most about it. Like, that's it, David Arquette uh-huh. is such a perfect presence in this movie because he's so good oh, at, God, like, yeah. that silly chaos factor. Like, he's good at mm-hmm. being the most chaotic, whirling dervish on a screen, like, in this in this era of his career. And <laughs> you have, like, the, like, it's the kind of vampires that I think... Uh, we experienced a lot in like 80s-ish fantasy where there was a very mm-hmm. there was a very prosthetic quality about it because obviously like the practical application make like things like the way like fr- like the when Jerry Dandridge is in like full vampire as Fright Night. Yes. And seeing something like this where it's yeah, almost yeah, like yeah, an yeah. animalistic kind of vampirism. I mm-hmm. like that sort of rubber reality. Like we're, you know, everything mm-hmm. can look so good now. <laughs> everything can look so, like, sort of seamless and flawless. And we're in a, we're still in a very grounded phase of fantasy and horror. Like, I feel like Hollywood wants, like, grounded sci-fi and, like, grounded fantasy. And we're not doing, like, necessarily, like, Excalibur-style sword and sandals epics. Like, we're not doing crawl at the moment, <laughs> much to my chagrin. But in something like this, I <laughs> like the play and the silliness of how the vampires look and their over-the-topness, this, like, Mm -hmm. the theatricality of it. I love the theatricality of this Buffy and the way that I don't really understand the word, but I think camp can creep in. I don't know. I could be wrong. could be right. Who knows? Camp's not real. Camp's real. Camp's everything and it's nothing. But, like, don't trust anybody who tells you the definition of camp. Nobody knows besides drag queens. And so, like, but I... I love the horror elements of this for what they are because it truly does feel like an all ages experience. Like I, if someone was like, I don't like vampire movies. I'd be like, you should still watch Buffy. Like it's, it's not going to be the, it's not going to be yes. the vampire story you're accustomed to. It's not going to be the vampire story you think it is. Don't worry. There's no ennui. Like, don't worry. None of these vampires are sad. They have to eat people. None of that. Like it's, it's going to be, it's going to be the sort of almost YA like, I think in the way that we would, cla- the way we classify movies now, it feels like a YA vampire mm-hmm. movie. And I love that about it. It's also a weird example, I think, of a sort of a, a teen horror movie that is goofy, that is zany, where I think the adult gravitas mm-hmm. actors. Yeah seem like they're genuinely having fun like donald sutherland looks like he's having fun he does um rutger hauer looks like he's having fun Wee Herb, sorry paul rubens <laughs> looks like he's having a lot of fun he does i'm like you guys you guys are having a lovely time and you know what i can see this and i am i it fills me with joy to see you mr hauer and mr sutherland having fun in the zany goofy like la LA-based teen black comedy with vampires in it. That is, yeah, it's an LA-based teen black comedy with vampires in it. And I, I, what I like about the the horror light aspect of it is that, like, I mm-hmm. love, I love blood and guts everywhere. But I also like that this manages to be like accessible maximalism, like that that we have. Oh. I, I like the aspect of like you know when we see. I think it affects. Buffy, I think it can affect Buffy's development with how she becomes the Slayer. Because honestly, she's never she's never confronting 
like really like blood and guts shit. Like it, it, you know, we're not having to watch mm. a 16-year-old cope with the fact that she just like watched someone turn into ash. She's killing people, that's a lot. But like we're not like there's not blood soaked everywhere. There's kind of a sterileness about it that allows the fun to be the primary driving thing and it allows for I think the teenness and the kidness of Buffy as the Slayer to continue to be pervasive because she's not like coping with having pieces mm-hmm. of people all over her <laughs> like which is a really fucked up thing to have to face down and I would have loved for the movie <laughs> to be that too but I think it allows for the fun frivolity that is that that Buffy mm-hmm. to con- to persist throughout the movie oh and also shouts out to the moment in this movie where Buffy's boyfriend Buffy's boyfriend's friend puts hands on her and she fucking lays mm-hmm. him out and he just like he reached oh, the, yeah. he passes by her in a high school hallway he's he says got to get some and he grabbed like like aggressively slaps and grabs her ass and she like puts a fucking move on him throws him into a wall of lockers and He's horrified and she tells him, don't grab me like that. And it is an excellent, like, yes, for all the silliness of this movie, Buffy is still a woman who's going to protect her physical shit at any cost and, like, terrified for you if you try to encroach on her physical space. Love that for Buffy. Love that for Buffy. I've really noticed that especially in the other scene where she first meets uh pike who's like perry and david arquette and david and david arquette does this like very basic uh like hot dog through the pants prank and she <laughs> we don't see her slice <laughs> of the hot dog we just see the sliced hot dog and it's sliced vertically and we hear so that and you hear that half. great she slices through it we hear that great foley effect that's just like whoo, and she has taken a knife yeah. and just like bisected vertically his hot dog dick in his hand yes and she doesn't even blink when he does it all her other girlfriends are like oh my god no uh, <laughs> and she's like mm-hmm. yeah she's like, let me let me let me grab this here knife my friend and then let me show you what i can do with a knife and i love that as like a precursor thing like she's not a slayer yet but like this is in her just because she doesn't know it doesn't mean it's not there and so when we see her capability with that We understand that this is not a person who has to be convinced into holding their own. We understand that this is not a girl who Mm -hmm. has to be convinced to stand her ground. Like, she just learns that she Mm -hmm. has to channel this thing she has in her to slay vampires. But, like, Buffy was Mm -hmm. a bad bitch. (laughs) Like, Buffy was always a bad bitch. She was a bad bitch in 1992 and she was a bad (laughs) bitch in 1998. (laughs) The the film got absolutely savage. Well, maybe that's an exaggeration. It did not go down super well <laughs> with critics. And it definitely didn't it definitely didn't have the same sort of lasting cultural legacy right. as the show did. Not at as all. this uh, this other um iteration of Buffy did. But do you think it holds up? Like, do you think people coming into this film relatively fresh? Mm-hmm. Because you can't I guess it'll be difficult for anyone who's a fan is a fan of the series right. to come in completely fresh into this. And the concept has now been done to death. Yeah. But do you think it stands up to to the initial criticisms that that it received back in the back in the nineties? It's so like it's one of those things where I look at it I look at it and I'm like, what else did you want from this? Like like what 
Truly. What in what was promised in this packaging did you not get? Like, what What was this supposed to be? Fucking interview with the vampire? Like, what do you mean <laughs> this isn't delivering? Like, this isn't the hunger. Like, what I... It's it's just... It, it's, I, it, it goes off without a hitch to me. Like, obviously, I've always loved it. And it would be... I completely understand how if you're coming in and you have a relationship with the series... It being like, no, mm-hmm. Buffy is something so specific to me, and she's Sarah Michelle Geller and the Scooby Gang, and like, yeah, that that's gonna you're gonna have to like do some mental gymnastics to be like, no, 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 I'm clearing my mind to see this as something that's like separate but equal. But if you have no prior Buffy exposure, and you were like, mm-hmm. and someone was like, hey, do you want to watch a dark comedy YA? teen fantasy vampire movie from 1992 and somebody watched this and they were like nah this didn't work i'd be like in what way in what aspect in in how did it not deliver on that sentence that i just gave you maybe you don't think it's perfect (laughs) like i do okay i will grant that but like what is this movie not accomplishing that you're like Mm, a movie with this tone and this agenda really should have done these things to be more successful. What? I love it. What? <laughs> Furious. Furious. Judge a movie for what it is. I liked it, Jordan. I really liked it. <laughs> is there... I'm I'm conscious that we're doing this as like not one of our epic two-hour podcasts. <laughs> I'm sure we'll record a lot more I'm like face, really but... trying to... I'm really trying to be conscious of that too. Before before we wrap up, is there is there anything about Buffy? And mm-hmm. I'm so I'm actually really really keen for people to discover this Buffy, especially for people who might not even know that there is a Buffy Completely. movie that is that predates the show. That is a completely different beast. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. the the best advice I can give to anyone who's like either a fan of the show or or has never seen the movie and it hasn't really or doesn't have an emotional connection with the show either. Should this is a different beast? Yeah, it's an entirely different thing. It's a different Buffy. It's the same basic idea, but it's a different universe completely. Yeah, it's a different tone in every single sense, and it is funny it's got it's got enough it like i was making notes as i was watching the movie like it's got enough zingers very specific weird 90s zingers to rival clueless (laughs) it does so many of them this like amy heckerling could have written this script it's got this particular kind of uh, in the similar vibe to heathers and to clueless Mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. it has this vernacular yep. that is so of a particular time and and place but also not of any time and place yes it just feels out of time and i love that about teenage movies love that. and i think it's very it's very difficult for teenage movies to like keep that keep that vibe intact mm-hmm. throughout the years mm-hmm. and especially the decades like you watch something that was made three years ago and it already feels dated by the <laughs> yeah. way that people are talking, especially if they're trying to portray young people in there. Yeah, in teenagers. five years, like, is it's Euphoria like, going to just seem like, what the fuck ever was this? Who knows? Who the fuck knows? But Buffy's from 1992 and I'm like, oh my God, I like, these teenagers are cooler than me. <laughs> like, I'm going to steal that <laughs> sentence from them. <laughs> and, you know, you, you bring up the, you talked about the teenness of it earlier. And I think that is... That is one mm. of the great joys of well-executed or at least 
fully committed teen movies when that my favorite kind of teen movies are the ones that feel like almost a sort of fabulous version of our actual reality like that's that's something I love Mm. so much about Jennifer's body like the way it was sort of disregarded at the time for in the screenwriting aspect being like oh yeah this just sounds like you know, this is Diablo Cody, really zeitgeisty. Like, nobody really talk Any any critique of Jennifer's body that was like, nobody really talks like this. It was like, yeah, there's the point. And you passed it about 60 miles ago. It's behind you on the left. Like, it, <laughs> of course it doesn't. Because we're not in the real world. We're in the Diablo Cody-verse. In the same way that, like, I, I love Quentin Tarantino movies. And I completely get that if he's not your bag, he's the fucking worst and insufferable and grating. Totally makes sense. But, like... Quentin Tarantino movies ostensibly take place in the real world, but they take place in Quentin Tarantino's filtered version of the real world. And then you watch something, Mm -hmm. you watch something like this, you watch something, it it was, you know, that was a great thing about Brick as, as, you know, the wonderful, Mm. surprising neo-noir that it is. Yes. Nobody talks like that, but these teens talk like that. So we are in these teens, Mm -hmm. this Ryan Johnson filtered version of the world. And when you can create a teen landscape, and Sela in the Spades accomplishes that really really well too when you can create a really insular teen environment where they have their own kind of language and customs and ways of relating to the world that does mirror the incredible sort of insularity at least at an earlier time of being a teenager and sort of being dissociated from the world around you again maybe at an earlier time everything everything is so connected now i don't know how teens feel about that but just like the way in which you're kind of, you're invincible, you're infallible, you have the luxury of thinking everyone mm. older than you is fucking stupid or lame, and you're you're the ones who knows what's cool. You're the ones who know what's up. And everybody older than you is, like, kind of tragic and, like, tragic and behind. If you can create that kind of teen universe for me where I feel like they are in their own little, like, snow globe apart from everything else and it makes everything epic and it makes everything consequential even if it's happening only at a teen scale i'm i'm gonna love it so very much and i think buffy does a good job this buffy does a good job of because besides merrick like you hear about parents in abstract like you're in buffy's home but like it seems like a world Mm -hmm. without adults like and that's what makes merrick feel like such like a grand master when you meet him is he feels so foreign Mm -hmm. to this environment that's only totally children and then you have Rutger Hauer who is obviously a grown-up but he's also like an ancient being so the only grown-ups that exist Mm -hmm. in this world are either ancient beings or they're not there and I love a total utter teen landscape with no supervision beautiful and you said like what would I what would I say to people like coming into Buffy I would say if you if you have no Buffy exposure watch this first you are if you get Mm -hmm. into the show first and, and you're you're feeling it you it will be harder to re- go back and watch the movie than it will be to watch the movie knock it out and then go watch the show because if you get to the show you're gonna spend fucking six what is it seven eight seasons with with that Buffy Summers you're gonna spend so much time in this universe learning these specific rules and relationships and vernacular and stuff it will be so much harder to dissociate after you have watched that much narrative to go back and be like oh yeah the Buffy movie is its own separate thing that I judge on its completely own merits so yeah watch the movie first not because it's better or worse not because you need to see it to watch the show you absolutely don't but because you will be able to have distinct relationships with both I think more effectively if you watch the movie and then watch the show 
I love it. I mean, you had me convinced before, but it's, just, it's <laughs> glorious to listen to your insight and your passion for Buffy oh in one shape or another. It just, it's so underseen. It deserves so much more. <laughs> Thank God for you. Thank God for you, Anna, is the bottom line. Jordan, thank you so much, as always, for your time, for the three hours beforehand that we spend chatting and for the hour that we spent mm-hmm. recording. But where- Yeah, the, the only way I can <laughs> I can do a half hour with you on a podcast is if we talk for three hours beforehand. That's, Listen, I'm, I'm okay with that bargain. I'm okay with that bargain. It's cool. It's part of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> I like, whenever we hang out, it's set aside the whole evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whole morning for me. Whole morning for me. <laughs> Um, Jordan, where can people find more of your fabulous work online? Um, I have a surprise. I have a new podcast, but this one is with an actual network. It is with the Maximum Fun Network. The podcast is called Feeling Seen, and I have a new guest on each week, and we talk about um, the movie character, or or maybe sometimes characters, uh, that they really... um, either first or or most fully felt resonated with them as like avatars for themselves and talking about like the process and importance of that in, in how we connect with art and and also the ways in which art fulfills us with these kinds of mirrors um, and the ways it also lets us down because not everybody gets to have an opportunity to see themselves and it's a lot more creative headcanon work to to find something that fits you as, as, as like a representative for yourself. So there's that. And then, you know, you can always go listen to the Disaster Podcast if you want to listen to podcast about disaster movies. You can always listen to episode of the Odds Tyrion Pod if you're curious about uh, the intersection of millennium-era pop culture and horror cinema that I do uh, with my friend, the director, Sam Weinman. So I'm constantly talking. And then whatever happens on the whole movie podcast and what that gets devoted to, uh, Simple Favor and Neon Demon previously and who knows what's next. So you can just really, you do not have to run out of hours of conversation, of me talking about movies. Included in that, the mini pod I did with Anna, the Promising Young podcast about Promising Young Women, which was really fulfilling a dream of, of uh, and a dream I will continue to pursue of making things with Anna. <laughs> Thank you so much. 